This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Michelle Now, CFO of Tri-County Mental Health Services, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 559. It's Jack, sweetie. It's no secret that certain companies won't even consider a CFO candidate who is not yet served in a CFO role. However, once a finance executive enters the CFO office, future CFO roles and opportunities are known to increase exponentially. So how do you shorten the path to the CFO office? On today's show, we speak to B. Ordinez, CFO of OTC Markets. B. entered the CFO office for the first time roughly 20 years ago. She was in her mid-20s. Now, to hear her tell it, one might believe B. was simply at the right place at the right time. But wait a minute, there's something more here. As B. relates her story, we get a sense of her appetite for self-growth and what others likely saw at that time, which was this determination to grow into the CFO role and master it. You be the judge. Today, as CFO of OTC Markets, B has set yet another bar for herself. We ask her about her latest milestones and much, much more after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, 
Hello, we're speaking with B. Ordnance, CFO of OTC Markets Group Incorporated. B, welcome. Thank you, Jack. B, as always, uh, we want to find out about OTC Markets today, but first we like to ask our guests to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? Sure, of course. Um, I guess the first thing that would come to mind was my first CFO role at roughly age 26, which feels like a million miles away from where I'm at now, but it was with a startup broker-dealer in Bermuda. I had moved to Bermuda in my early 20s from London, where I qualified as an accountant. And, you know, honestly, in retrospect, on paper at least, I was woefully underqualified for that role, but it was a startup broker-dealer. It was in an area that I wasn't super familiar with. Um, I interviewed. I I landed the role, and I worked really, really hard um, and and really learned the business from the ground up. There's something about working for a startup that really gives you an exposure um, to that business that you wouldn't otherwise get at a more established firm. Um, And it really built my confidence in a lot of ways and, and as I say, gave me exposure to sort of the multifaceted sort of um, aspects of building a business from finance through operations, through sales, and so on. So I I think that was certainly one of my more formative experiences, Um, you know, moving forward through my career. You know, again, with that same organization, we'd gone through a few transitions at that point, um, and the business had been sold and and so on. And we were transitioning what was then a 70-person or so operations um, from Bermuda to the U.S. And I was charged with leading that transition and really just lifting that whole function, that finance and operations function, from one location um, to the other and really starting over. Um, we moved very few people and hired you know, a, a group of you know, largely inexperienced folks out of Orlando to really provide the support for what was then a, a truly global business. So we provided the finance and operational support for trading activities across about 90 global markets. Um, It meant a bunch of stuff. It meant that we had to have expertise across all those markets and infrastructure. It meant we had to support the operations really 24 by 6, which in and of itself was super challenging. But really what was great, you know, for me in terms of a formative experience was hiring all those people, training them, watching them grow, which is is really super rewarding, and really building a culture and and creating a work ethic that, that even to this day I'm super proud of. Um, And then I guess finally, you know, in roughly 2010, I moved to New York again with sort of the same organization, which continued to to morph in a number of ways um, and took a much more strategic sort of business-facing role, um, sort of beyond just a finance and operational role, and really got to be part of, you know, a broader team and a larger organization that was driving the strategic direction, you know, bringing forward new business ideas assessing new product ideas and new business lines and really sort of looking at corporate development activities and so on. And it was really that role and, you know, the last sort of seven or eight years that prepared me for my current role in terms of really taking a more, you know, as I say, strategic posture within the senior management team. You know, I want to uh, mention here, again, you, you talked about uh, becoming a chartered accountant, I believe, in the, in the U.K., and, of course, I think that's – is the U.K. home originally? 
Um, I'm originally Spanish, but yes, I grew up in London, um, and that's where I, I went to college and did all of that kind of stuff. And originally, you were deep in uh, uh, tax accounting and consulting work, I, I, I believe. The CFO role in Bermuda really allowed you, in many ways, to broaden yourself, really open up a whole new world for your career. Is that? Am I overstating that? No, I, I, I think that's right. You know, in common with many folks who start out in an accounting field, I didn't do accounting in college. I, I was a law graduate, but I, I did, as you mentioned, um, tax accounting for Arthur Anderson and then subsequently Pricewaterhouse. Um, but that was really my first role that was truly an industry, not not a role where it was a consultative role or providing, you know, tax or audit or other accounting advice to another third-party entity. I was really in the business, um, and because it was a startup, it, I was employee number three, I think. Um, it, it really sort of opened my eyes and gave me exposure, as I said, to, to all of the facets of that business. I want to come back to your career a little later on when we have our mentoring round, if you don't mind. And, uh, but right now, I want you to tell us about OTC Markets Group. What are these offerings? What does this unique organization provide its clients and customers? Sure. Um, look, like you say, it is very much a unique organization or, or rather occupies a very unique position in the equities market landscape more generally. Um, but in the most simple terms, we operate a trading market for about 10,000 public companies. And for those that aren't super familiar with our model, I, I usually find it helpful to frame it by reference to some of the exchange operators because folks are very familiar with their model. And if you think of, of, of us in those terms, it sort of clicks. So we operate three business lines. One is a trading business. We operate two SEC-registered alternative trading systems. And very simply, what those platforms do is they allow broker-dealers to connect and just to efficiently trade those 10,000 securities that are on our platform. Um, the second business line is a, a suite of products that we provide to the companies, i.e. to issuers. And really what we're doing, again, in very simple terms, is we're providing them with access to all of the benefits of a public trading market at a much lower cost and with much less complexity. And then finally, again, just like an exchange, those two first business lines that I mentioned, they generate a lot of proprietary market data from pricing information to company data and so on. And so through a suite of market data licenses, we distribute that data to, to market participants, to companies themselves, to retail investors, and so on. Um, so, you know, you can see that through that, just like an exchange, we, we serve a diverse sector of the market. We serve about 100 broker-dealers who trade on our platform. We have more than 10,000 companies. Um, and as I noted, look, they're, they're very, very diverse. We have um, more than 6,000 global companies, i.e. non-U.S. companies. And those companies include Roche and Adidas and Heineken and Marks and & Spencers and quite recently Hugo Boss and so on. Um, we have more than 2,000 domestic SEC-registered companies. We have roughly 600 community banks. And our market data on those companies reaches, again, a, a broad swath of the, of the market, more than 21,000 professional users, roughly 14,000 retail investors, and so on. What did this chapter, as you join OTC, what did this chapter mean for you exactly? You had already uh, been in what I would call the, uh, the broker-dealer space, financial services area. Uh, 
Was this something more ambitious, though? I mean, obviously, it's it's a different uh, company, a different uh, organization altogether. Can you can you help us understand when you came through the door at OTC what uh, what chapter you felt like you were opening? Sure. I mean, as you said, I, I came up through the broker dealer side of the industry, and that was my experience for you know more than twenty years. Um, and so it wasn't a huge departure in terms of sort of sector. But what was very different um, was really the exposure to, to the whole ecosystem. When you work in a broker-dealer, you view things very much from the position of that broker-dealer. Yes, you serve clients and so on, but, but you, I feel like you have a much more sort of one-dimensional view of the market. When you operate the market itself, you really, again, have all of those diverse constituents that I talked about. You're at service to the broker-dealers who are an important sort of driver of the trading on the platform to the issuers, the actual companies, and, and they can range from very, very small venture companies right up to sort of mega blue-chip international entities. You serve retail investors, enterprises, banks, broker-dealers. You, you, you know, liaise very, uh, very closely with regulators around the framework in general. And because of the position that OTC markets occupate, occupies in the space, um, and how important we are to that OTC space, what we have an opportunity here to do something that in a broker-dealer you just couldn't, which is to really frame, frame the discussion and, and help frame the market itself to best serve all of those interests and to do it successfully. So, you know, moving here gave me a much broader experience in terms of the financial markets landscape. And because just at the company level, you know, I'd worked, I talked a little bit about the various sort of phases of, of my role um, when I was in that broker-dealer industry. We were acquired by BMY Mellon, so I worked for very large organizations, all the way down to very small startup organizations. And this one is sort of that sweet spot of, you know, 100-ish people, the, the right kind of size where when you join, you know, you, you can be super impactful almost straight away. It, you work closely with the business lines, the technology, uh, and you really can sort of help drive strategic direction. Now, I, I think you've provided us with a wonderful uh, overview of sort of the, the, the ecosystem that OTC Markets uh, performs in today. But um, if we had to boil it down to uh, sort of those top of, top of mind numbers that you're always paying attention to, what are you looking at every day in terms of metrics and numbers? Sure. I mean, you know, we're a subscription-based business, uh, largely subscription. If you look at our, our disclosure, close to 90% of our revenues come from some form of subscription-based product or service. And so the metrics that we use are, are the ones that you would pay close attention to in any subscription-based business. So, you know, sales and sales pipeline numbers are, are especially important. They give me a good snapshot of where we're at today and the relative strengths of our offering sort of out into the future. It's particularly true with our issuers product where we can see you know, how mature leads are and how many there are in the pipeline, what kind of sectors, what kind of geographies, um, what kind of companies in general. So that, that gives me really good visibility there. 
um, you know, obviously in a subscription world, churn rate and voluntary renewal rate is super important. And again, when, when we look at some of our most successful products, we have renewal rates that are in the sort of 94, 95% range. So we watch that very closely, particularly when we make changes either to rule sets or to pricing. It's a very good indicator of, you know, the utility that we're providing to issuers relative to the value. Um, ARR, annual recurring revenue, is obviously a key indicator we look at for certain business lines, um, particularly, you know, newly acquired business lines. We did a couple of very small acquisitions, but something newly acquired or perhaps something organically grown where we're really building that book of business, building that pipeline. We're looking at that ARR on an ongoing basis and making assessments there. And then at a more granular level, as we look at sort of the various business units, in our trading business, we're obviously looking at the number of broker-dealer participants, how the industry is shaping up, what sort of consolidation we're seeing. Um, we're looking at the number of securities that are being actively quoted and how many broker-dealers are quoting them. It's a good indicator, really, of the, the amount of interest in the space more generally. In our market data business, we might be looking again at pipeline and new sales. And again, a, a, you know, one of the bigger indicators in that business, that, again, of overall health and, and also the, the revenue drivers is the number of subscribers in terms of professional users, retail users, and so on. Um, and then finally, just the sort of obvious ones, I guess, around operating efficiency metrics, so revenue per employee, operating margin, um, and so on. So we, we, we look across a sort of a broad spectrum of metrics um, to really try and understand what are the levers, what are the drivers, how do we look today, and importantly, how are we looking sort of out into the distance a little bit. Now, while many of the metrics might be the same, I wonder when you meet some of your professional peers out there, CFOs perhaps from other industries, are you ever surprised uh, or, or think that your day-to-day -day priorities are so different from theirs in certain ways, or no, are they very much the same? Um, I think it can, it can vary widely, obviously based on the kind of industry as well as the size. Um, of the company. I mean, as I've said, I, I think we have, I view it as a benefit, maybe others wouldn't. I have the benefit of, of touching a broad range of areas in any given day. I, I might have a, a day that involves, you know, an hour with our tax advisors to better understand a particular tax credit that's available, a meeting thereafter with our technology head to understand how we optimize our, our cloud cost structure and so on. So I, I'm looking across sort of a spectrum of things. And when I talk to peers in, in bigger companies, they might have a, a, a sort of very important portfolio, but one that is more sort of um, focused towards financial reporting type aspects. But increasingly, and I hear this a lot in the industry, you know, and I'm sure you do too from, from talking to folks, you know, the, the concept of an operational CFO seems to be more and more important and, and more and more, you know, front and center that a CFO and a finance function more generally Yes, they have to do the financial reporting and audits have to get signed off and taxes need to be filed, but that is, is considered simply the sort of core day-to-day -day. and where the real value is is, to helping, is in helping drive strategy in providing you know, better, more timely, more actionable data to the business to help make better decisions as an organization. Has it ever surprised you 
some of the questions your professional peers might have for you? Or does it surprise you what they seem to be focused on rather than on what you see the real value uh, you bring organizations? Um, I, I think certainly, and, and this has changed even within the last, you know, two to five years. I've been here about four years. I think there's there's a lot of myths, if you like. I, I just watched an interview that one of my colleagues did um, in London around myth busting um, and sort of some of the myths that exist about our markets more generally. I think we've got a very long um, and interesting history that the company in one way, shape, or form has been around since the early 1900s. And its, its origins was as a printing press when the OTC market was really just that. It, it provided you sort of with a, an enormous book called the Pink Sheets, which allowed you, if you had interest in trading a particular over-the-counter stock, to determine what broker-dealer was making a market in it and what was the last price that was quoted. So we've come a really, really long way and made, you know, that was the whole genesis of the company as it exists today, making that market fully transparent, fully electronic, um, and really putting sort of structure around the market to, to provide, you know, one of the core tenets for us to provide real data transparency that allows all of the market participants to, to do what markets are supposed to do, which is to price risk and to do so efficiently. So I, I think for folks who have been around a long time and who perhaps remember, you know, some of the earlier history of the company, that they have misconceptions about the kind of companies that trade here and what we do. Uh, and when they understand sort of, you know, how we've evolved the market and helped frame it and, and provided more transparency, as well as understand the, the diverse nature of the companies we serve and how broad our reach is, um, sometimes they're, they're certainly surprised. But I, I see that changing as, as we continue to sort of tell our story um, and put ourselves out there and, and gain recognition. Just one last uh, question on, on metrics, really. Uh, many finance leaders have told us that, uh, well, the net promoter score is something that they're paying much closer attention to these days as a, as a non-financial metric. I think you touched on a number of different uh, perhaps metrics that weren't necessarily financial. But uh, when I ask you about non-financial metrics, are there any that you have uh, perhaps begin paying closer attention to in the mix? Um, I mean, certainly that's an area as we begin to shift the focus. I talked a little bit about you know, operational CFOs and in general shifting the focus of the finance department away from doing sort of the core to more value-added stuff. I, I think where I see sort of us shifting our focus a little bit here is less in that area and more around sort of more actionable analysis that helps drive better decisions. So that might be, as I said, really looking at how we optimize our use of cloud technology and ensuring that we fully understand and vet it, you know, as we go through that process. That might be, and, and this is especially important for a small firm, but I, I think something that all firms need to do well, truly analyzing and, and, and building a case to, to figure out where one should expend internal resources. You know, 65% of our expense base is comp, and a, a very significant amount of that expense base is development, technology and development resources. So how we deploy those resources is incredibly um, important. It's a crucial decision that we make now that can impact what we do you know, for the next 18, 24 months and beyond. So it's around bringing value to those kind of decision sets, um, as well as doing all of the other day-to-day -day stuff. 
Okay. Well, we always like to ask for what we refer to as a finance strategic moment, and this is something you may, to, may have had at OTC. It might have been earlier in your career. I'm sure you've had many of them. Uh, but we're, we're looking for examples that help illustrate how finance is playing a, a strategic role in business. Is there anything that comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Um, I mean, I, I don't know that there's a single moment, as you said, but, you know, probably my most formative experience in terms of building blocks was my first CFO role. Uh, and in many ways, even though it's quite a long time ago now, it, it really prepared me for future roles more than any other. As I said, it was a startup broker dealer, and I, I think that gives you unparalleled exposure um, to, to what it takes to really build a business and drive it forward. Um, it was a joint venture with Bloomberg Tradebook at the time. Um, so the company, even though it was a startup, benefited from immediate credibility and distribution, which is great. But what we saw certainly in building out that infrastructure was that we had to often play catch-up to, to the business and really sort of put in place operations and structure and systems and controls um, that really worked and could scale as the business grew. So, you know, on a, on a personal level, it certainly gave me, it was a baptism, baptism by fire, if you like. It, it gave me confidence in, in my ability to sort of help drive something without a blueprint. But from a sort of strategic perspective, it, it taught me a whole ton of things. But certainly it gave me close-up exposure to, to what is really the biggest driver of any business success, which is that you really need to be providing, providing utility to, to, your, to your customers, right? You need to be solving a problem. It, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but solving a problem, providing a real workflow advantage. And you need to do that sort of at the outset, but also constantly and in the long run. Otherwise, you know, someone will come into this space and, and do it better than you, cheaper than you, or whatever it may be. So you, you need to constantly adapt to that changing environment. And that's something that, that is very much, again, a tenet that we have here. We, we try to constantly adapt to help frame the market to serve the needs of the constituents, to really engage with those constituents, not, not just to assume that we understand what they need, but to really talk to them actively and in an ongoing way to really understand what their challenges are and to bring products and services um, out that, that help solve for those challenges. So. You know, what, what I saw in that startup, what I, what I continue to see in my current role, is really that, that, that we're at service to the, the clients, subscribers, and constituents um, who, who we help um, in their daily work. And unless you're listening to those folks and actively helping um, solve their problems, then you're, you're not going to make it. Thought Leader listeners, when we return, CFO B. Ordonez enters the mentoring round after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. 
To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hi, we're back with CFO B. Ordonez, and we're entering the mentoring round. What is it that you're finding exciting about finance and business today? There was quite a bit of excitement when I'm sure when you first step into a CFO role, but what is it today that's exciting you about finance and business? Um, I mean, I, I think we've touched on it a little bit. It, it's really the evolution that has gone on, you know, certainly in the last five to ten years, but, but continues, I think, to accelerate, which is that CFOs and finance professionals in general are seen less as, as number crunchers and the people that simply need to, to be there and, and look back retrospectively and report and, and do the financial sort of aspects. And are seen more as, you know, partners to the business, and sort of key stakeholders that can help drive a business forward. I think that's always what's been, and I've had a variety of roles from CFO to COO type roles to more strategic roles. And I think, you know, being in finance gives you many of the building blocks that, that you need to help you understand the business or business more generally. But it's really applying those building blocks to more strategic thinking that is what's exciting certainly to me and I, I suspect to most of my peers. Okay, so our next question, and, and I'm gonna add a little bit to this because you've shared a, a good number of thoughts on this already uh, with us. I usually ask, what do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? And again, you shared with us how you really had this unusual opportunity to step into the C-suite as the finance leader of a startup. And um, I'm going to share some thoughts with you. And I want to, what, what occurs to me is, again, um, we've had other uh, finance leaders who were rooted in uh, tax accounting and tax laws. And they shared with us that they faced something of a challenge uh, to break out of that. Uh, it's not unlike maybe Treasury sometimes. Finance leaders need to demonstrate that they're broader, that they're more operational or can play a greater role. This role allowed you to do just that. However, I have to believe, uh, and I think you've already sort of expressed this, that you are stepping into a role having actually spent most of your career in large consulting and accounting organizations into a startup. Um, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? Sure. I mean, look, I'll share some advice that someone really did give me when I was, I think, 22 in Arthur Anderson. Um, and we had determined that a particular election hadn't been filed in a timely manner, and, and I was the most junior person on the job. But I, I had an oh-no moment, and I took it to the, the manager. who looked at it and said, well, B, look, we're not doctors and nurses. It's not life and death, which was not at all the reaction that I was expecting. But I, I've quoted her a few times, more than a few times since, because it's super important, obviously, what we do, and, and we take it seriously, and I take it seriously. But sometimes you need perspective, and, and when you're sort of at the coal phase with a, a series of crises, particularly in a startup where we grew very quickly and there was, we, we seemed to lilt at times from one crisis to the next, it, it's, it's worth grounding yourself in, yes, you should take it seriously, and yes, it's important, but it's not life and death, because it, if you can sort of drain some of the drama out of it a little bit, you're better positioned to, to solve the problem. And, and so that's sort of the advice that perhaps I didn't realize was as important then as I do now, which is to, to take a step back, take a deep breath. Almost everything can be resolved 
Um, and even if it, it can't be, it's really not life and death. Well, it's one thing to be able to have a conversation inside the C-suite and engage board members. It's another to have people look to you as a leader in an organization. You had advised clients before at senior levels, but here you are, um, and I imagine there's been a good number of hires you've made over the years. Any, any thoughts on how you may have acquired that leadership bearing that you have? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess in terms of sort of my ethos for, for quote-unquote leading or building a team, as I said, one of my most formative sort of transitions was building a team from the ground up that grew to 100 people. Um, and involved hiring lots of folks who perhaps had one or two years post-college, but not much more than that. So they were at very formative points of their career too. Um, and, and what I always found has worked, it's my natural inclination anyway, it is just to try and lead by example. And, and what I, both in terms of how you carry yourself um, from a sort of ethical perspective, but also in terms of being willing to roll up your sleeve and get in the trenches and understand on a day-to-day -day basis what the folks who work in your team are doing. So, as I said, we ran a 24-by-6 operation back in the day. That involved staffing, you know, a team for Asia hours, and folks would work all night. I always made it a point to work some of those shifts at least some of the time, and it was awful, but it, it gave me an understanding of, of what the challenges were, and it also hopefully sort of showed my team that I was there with them uh, and trying to understand the challenges they had on a day-to-day -day and, and really sort of getting into the nuts and bolts of, of the business. So I've tried to carry that forward. I, I think you need to, you need to again, lead by example would be sort of the, the shortest way I could, I could explain it. Okay. Well, uh, we also want you to somewhat reflect uh, on your, your personal habits. We always like to discover if there's a personal habit or part of your routine that you believe has in some way allowed you uh, to succeed professionally. Does anything come to mind when we ask for a personal habit or uh, a daily routine? Personal habits. Interesting. Um, you know, at times in my career, I worked so hard that I didn't have any personal life, and whatever personal time I did have, I used it for sleeping. Um, in terms of personal habits now, I, I think, you know, work-life balance is, is incredibly important. Um, and it's something I value much more now than perhaps I did in my early 20s. And it, it's, you know, finding time for yourself. I mean, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, um, finding at least some, some time where you sit and read a book quietly or, or go for a walk it is, again, it, it comes back to sort of what we talked about a little bit in terms of keeping perspective. It, it's ensuring that you keep some of perspective in terms of your balance between your personal life and work. Have you uh, ever unplugged yourself for a period of days? Or by that I mean, of course, electronically, no, no phone, no. Uh, recently, a finance leader shared with us that's uh, in part her recipe for uh, better managing professional and personal life. Ah, I, I mean, I think that that is great. I haven't done that in a long time. Um, many years ago, I did. I did go on safari and found that I had no. Um, access to electronics, not even a landline in some places, and it was at a particularly sort of busy time um, in general, and it made me very anxious, so now it, it's probably a habit I should adopt, but it's not one that I have adopted. <laughs> You're not alone. I don't think many finance leaders are capable of that. We'd like to ask if you have a book you'd like to recommend. Interesting. Um, 
a book I would recommend. I mean, I, I try and read a mixture of fiction and nonfiction on an ongoing basis. Um, right now I'm reading the sequel, sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, which is, is a spectacular book. Um, I don't know that I'd recommend that in terms of the CFO leadership manual necessarily, but it's certainly very interesting. Um, one of the recent business books I read was the one about the Saranus. Um, I thought that that was a fascinating look at, at how a company with so much promise went off the rails. So I, I forget the name. I think it was called True Blood or something like that. But it was around the, the uh, bad blood secrets and lies in Silicon Valley startup. That's the one. And John Carreyou is the author. Uh, we are up to our final question where we get to ask you to look forward and share with us your finance leader priorities over the next 12 months? Um, really a continuation of, of what I tried to do since we got here, I mean, what, or since I got here. When I arrived, we're, as I say, or maybe I didn't say, we're a public company. Um, and so all of the financial reporting and, and sort of the day-to-day the -day running, that was all in great shape. I really didn't need to make a, a, any changes. I have a great team. Um, they're, they're really phenomenal. Um, and they do a great job, and they were just good processes and procedures to get all of that done. So for me, it's been about shifting the focus to, you know, as, I, as I said, to provide better, more actionable data um, to the business lines, to technology, to management, and so on, and, and helping us drive forward to be a better organization as a result. So some of our key objectives sort of organizationally as we look forward is really around alignment and, and better goal setting and better resource allocation, and finance will, will spend an enormous amount of time kind of helping around that, um, and really sort of being being an, a, a resource for the business in you know making those decisions and making those assessments as we move forward. And OTC Markets is, is just placed in a really extraordinarily interesting spot in the market that there's a lot of um, disruption in terms of the exchange space generally, new entrants. We live in super interesting times in terms of the ecosystem in general, um, a, an extraordinary amount of conflict between broker-dealers and exchanges, between exchanges and their regulator, new entrants coming into the market. So uh, we see that the, there could be tr tremendous disruption to the market more generally, more specifically to our space. Um, the SEC released a number of papers over the summer that touch on important aspects of our space and give us a, a really sort of important and, and critical um, opportunity to continue to frame the market and how we serve people. So it will be sort of you know, part of my focus and the team's focus will be sort of considering the impact of that and, and positioning us to take advantage of it. Be your donors. Thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter. 
featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.